So if you will take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2, we begin a new chapter this morning, and uh, we'll be in it for uh, a few weeks, I think. But we're going to make an effort to cover chapters 1 through 10, because it is a bit, bit of a narrative, so we're not uh, picking apart every single word. As you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just say a few uh, preliminary words, though. We understand uh, the adage, change is hard. Right? We understand that. And the older we get, the harder it gets. Uh, the prospects of having to do more and more on the computer screen is daunting for most people 50 and over, which, believe it or not, is 35% of all Americans. That's, that's 118 million people in America who spend a good amount of their time just learning the rules of the game. And there are still 13,000 people in this country that grew up without television who are expected to work with a phone that's smarter than they are. That's like going from 10 miles an hour to 110 in a matter of seconds. And if they're not drowning in the turbulent waters of social media, they're adrift in cyberspace somewhere, not knowing which button on the keyboard to press to get out. I had a friend a World War II vet who loved his manual Smith Corona typewriter, and he vehemently refused to give it up when computers came out and were fashionable. Oh, no, no. Let's face it, overhead projectors, mimeograph machines, the classifieds, yellow pages, and travel maps are relics of the past. If Jerry Siegel lived today, he would never have invented Superman. Why? No phone booths. <laughs> now, we might laugh when we hear all this, but it's no laughing matter when we're swirling around in the vortex of cyber culture. Now, granted, some change is welcomed by us old fogies, especially when it means that we don't have to work as hard, right? We, we, remember, we remember when microwaves came out that saved us a lot of time. So did the newfangled coffee makers when they came out, and trash compactors, and electric, electric garage doors, and self-coiling hoses. And the greatest of all, don't forget, the remote. Yes, no longer do we need to put, uh, do, we, do we need to put needle to vinyl in order to hear our favorite tunes? No, there's Wi-Fi. Yes, when it comes to banking, uh, uh, it comes to, uh, to, 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 to banking online or smart watches or using apps, in computer setups, there's a learning curve that gets steeper with age, but we do appreciate the benefits, we have to admit. Now, perhaps the change that we most dislike and will never get used to, nor should we, is the ideological changes that take place in this country, which is happening at net break speed. And I'm referring to the redefining of time-honored moral concepts and Symbols that are beloved and were part of America ever since her founding. We used to believe that justice is blind. But somewhere, somewhere, someone along the line stole the blindfold from Lady Justice when we weren't looking. We used to believe that people should be judged by their performance and abilities, not by their skin color. But thanks to CRT, we judge people now by their skin color in this country. The American flag, a symbol of of the land of the free and home of the brave, we used to say, has become a, a symbol of racism. To tolerate something used to mean to put up with a, de with a deviation from the norm. 
but now it means to accept on equal par a different point of view on what the norm is. Then again, even to speak of moral normalcy is no longer no longer acceptable. It's offensive because, well, everyone defines moral normalcy, normalcy differently. And so you see, this change is insidious. It calls good evil and evil good, and we can thank a small group of elites running our country for creating it. And when the, with the help of liberal media, they want to make us think that the majority of Americans embrace this change with open arms. The truth is, the majority see right through this scheme, and they are right to resist it. They have a bad feeling about it, and they should. Genuine Christian feel worse when ideological change impacts the faith, when depraved secularists hijack biblical symbols and concepts for their own purposes and have corrupted them. Symbols like the rainbow, which used to speak of God's covenant promise to Noah. The wedding ring, a sign of God's holy institution of marriage between a man and a woman. The change that takes place with these symbols is really beyond belief. The church, church which is unique, the body of Christ, which Christ, where Christ is the head, and, and it is commissioned to make disciples. Even the Bible, which we believe to be God's inerrant and infallible and authoritative and sufficient word that demands obedience and is incompatible with any other belief system. These are all change. And in fact, they, in fact, they continue to change. Now, this redefining is nothing new. You understand, Satan started redefining life for human beings in Genesis 3, right after the fall. Paul talks about it in Romans 1. Right from the beginning, God established important concepts like faith and the gospel and worship and sacrifice, to name a few, but Satan redefined them in a and a fallen world is something very dark. By the time God created the nation of Israel, pagan cultures had hijacked those concepts and redefined them far beyond their original meaning. You see, Israel was not the first to worship or to have a sacrificial system. Oh no, pagan wor pagans worshipped their gods for a millennium before Israel. They had detailed sacrificial systems. But their worship and their sacrifice were corruptions of the original. Biblical worship never, ever involved self-cutting, as was the custom of the prophets of Baal, or about persuading the deity, which again was what the prophets of Baal believed. The object of worship was never the creation, as it is for depraved people, says Paul in Romans 1. Biblical sacrifice never involved babies, never temple prostitutes or statues of deities. So when God created the nation of Israel, he brought her back to the way worship and sacrifice was always meant to be. He set the record straight for Israel. So there would be no confusion on her part, going forward in her mission to make Yahweh known to the nations. It was offensive to God, and therefore it should be offensive to us. And what we should find most offensive 
more offensive or most offensive still, I think, is when so-called pastors and popular Christian authors and conference speakers and Christian bloggers and podcasts redefine the faith. They have a persuasive voice and sadly, the blind trust of many unsuspecting and naive churchgoers. So what's our responsibility in all of this? How should we respond to the hijacking of our faith by people with big smiles and deep pockets? We have no business representing Christ. Well, we need to take our cue from the Apostle Paul, who faced the same thing in Galatians chapter 2, and I've captured the exposition for us this way. You'll find it recorded in your bulletin. I might put it this way. We must review the basics of Bible doctrine when gospel ministry is at stake, since God compels us to be unwaveringly of one mind over them in order to preserve biblical unity and affirm the ministry. So let's see how this unfolds in the chapter. First of all, there is Paul's return in verse 1, where we learn that we need to address doctrinal issues when necessary. Address doctrinal issues when necessary. This is what Paul says, verse 1, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now, Paul came to know Christ on the Damascus Road, as we know. He received from the Lord there the gospel and his apostleship. He was baptized and immediately started proclaiming Jesus in Damascus while he lived for three years just beyond the city limits in the Arabian Desert where he received an on-the-spot on theological education from the Holy Spirit. At the end of that time, he was driven out by death threats from the Jewish religi religious bunch that that were living in Damascus, and he took this opportunity to go to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and also James, the head of the church. Fifteen days later, Paul receives more death threats from the religious establishment there for preaching Christ. And so the brothers whisked him away to the port of Caesarea and sent him off by boat to his hometown, Tarsus, in Cilicia. He remained there preaching and teaching, and making disciples at least 10 years until Barnabas sought him out and recruited him to share the teaching ministry with him in the Antioch church in Syria. Paul and Barnabas taught there for a solid year, and Galatians 2 picks up at this point where Paul makes a second visit to Jerusalem. Now why exactly did Paul go at this time? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to consult Luke's account of this very same visit in Acts 11, verses 27 to 30. This is what Luke records. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there would be definitely a severe famine over the world. And this took place in the region of, uh, in the reign of Claudius. And to the extent that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this, sending it with Barnabas and Saul to the elders there. So according, so according to Luke, Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem to bring relief to the the two were reliable men of God who could be trusted. Please try it. 
Who is Barnabas? According to Luke, he was a Levite from Cyprus by the name of Joseph. And uh, when he received Christ, uh, is anyone's guess, but he grew up under the faith, uh, or in the faith, under the discipleship of the Jerusalem church. He was a close uh, uh, associate of the apostles. In fact, he eventually became an apostle, outside the twelve, of course. And apparently, he had the gift of encouragement which is why the apostles gave him the sobriquet, or nickname, Barnabas, which in Greek means son of encouragement. He and Paul worked well together, and this would not be the last time the Antioch church would send them into ministry. While Luke gives us the reason for their trip to Jerusalem, it is noteworthy that Paul says nothing about it in Galatians 2. Huh. Most scholars believe that's because this visit is the Jerusalem Council visit. But we have already disproved that in our introduction. Paul would not have left out uh, any visits in his retelling of his post-conversion history. And besides, there are many aspects of the Council, the Jerusalem Council visit, uh, that, that, that are missing here as well. Now this is certainly the Relief Fund visit, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. So why would Paul leave out the main purpose for going to bring money to the poor churches of Judea? Well, because it was not Paul's main purpose for going. That's why. His purpose was different. His purpose was to clarify a very important theological matter. We'll confirm this a little bit later as we go through the text where there is no hint of financial aid, but the presence of Titus speaks volumes to this. Titus, he was a Greek from Antioch, converted under Paul's preaching, became Paul's protege, along with Timothy, and played a supporting role in Paul's uh, church planning ministry in Crete. Titus' presence was not necessary to deliver relief money, but it was necessary to lend clarification to this important theological issue, as we'll see. So to put it succinctly, Paul goes up to Jerusalem to straighten out a theological issue that has arisen for the sake of the unity and for the sake of unity in ministry. That's why. And before we continue in this text, let me stress the need that churches today have for this practice of preserving doctrine. Sadly, important doctrinal matters are often poorly handled, if not altogether skirted for various reasons. Leadership really doesn't know theology well. That happens a lot. Or maybe they're afraid that they might get people upset if they bring up a particular doctrinal issue. Or that it might hurt the unity of the church. All of these, of course, bad reasons, as we'll discuss a little bit later. Against them stands the one and most important reason that Christians need to address theological issues and it was Paul's reason as well. What is that reason? Verses 2 and 3, God compels us to be of one mind about truth and error. That's the reason. God compels us to be of one mind about truth and error. The relief fund was for Paul just an opportunity to be obedient to God and address a theological issue that needed to be clarified. And make no mistake, Paul says in the first part of verse 2 that God compelled him. 
want you to notice in the first part of that verse, he says, it was because of a revelation I went up. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wasn't this the revelation that, the, uh, that Luke spoke of in, in, in Acts 11 regarding the famine that Agabus gave, that, that, uh, that, that there was a need to give financial aid to the church of Jerusalem, and that's why they should go up? Well, it seems to fit. But F.F. F. Bruce has his doubts, and he leads or leans uh, toward another, a more personal revelation that Paul himself received of which we have no record or knowledge of. He says this, quote, Paul's language here suggests rather a revelation received by himself, end quote. So it's not really easy to determine, but for the three reasons that I just mentioned a moment ago for Paul's purpose, I believe Bruce is right. Paul may very well have received a private revelation from God that also coincided with the church's famine relief mission to Jerusalem. In other words, the church sent Paul to Jerusalem for a specific purpose, but Paul had his own reasons for going. And he wants the Galatians to know that God specifically called him to straighten out a theological issue, and the famine relief visit was as good a time as any to fulfill it. God compelled Paul to see to it that he and the Jerusalem church were of one mind regarding the gospel of grace and also regarding those who opposed his gospel of grace. Paul says, beginning at verse 2 and straight to the end of verse 3, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. The Greek word translated submit that Paul uses occurs elsewhere only one other time. It's in Acts 25, verse 14, where Festus presented details of Paul's case to King Agrippa. The word means to present, to lay out the details of a matter for someone's consideration. And Paul laid out before the apostles the essence of the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not looking for the apostles' approval of his gospel. We already, we already proved that in chapter 1. Now, what he wanted to do is state for the record the gospel of grace in light of the growing attacks on it from the Judaizers and their propagation of a gospel of works. And he wanted the true facts of the matter known and set straight that, that what he preached was the real gospel and what the Judaizers were preaching was the false one. Did Paul really need to do this with the apostles? I mean, after all, they're fellow apostles. Well, they surely would have picked up on this, right? Well, not so fast. Not necessarily. You need to remember that an apostle was a function that was necessary for the start of the, of the church in the New Covenant. A function. But it was filled with men who were still sinners, who at times could certainly make bad choices. We'll see later on that Paul had to correct Peter on one occasion for making a very bad decision. Giving the apostles the benefit of the doubt here, Paul might have thought 
that the Jerusalem apostles were not current with the whole controversy because they were not ministering in Gentile regions like Paul was, where all of this stuff was taking place. The idea is clearly that Paul's, Paul was steadfast about what he was preaching, and he wouldn't waver for, from it. He needed to make sure that they knew what he knew, and that they would respond the same way he had. They all had to be of the same mind, on the same page, believe the same thing. And Paul was very tactful in the way that he went about this. <clears throat> he presented his case just to James and Peter and John the first time around, and not to the entire church of Jerusalem, as he put it, for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain. What does he mean by that? Well, simply that he wouldn't want to upset the entire church unnecessarily, where many of them were, were still proud of of their Jewish heritage, if not even practicing certain customs of their tradition. We talked about this in our introduction. And if he put himself at odds with the Jerusalem church, well, that wouldn't be good. It would show the world that Christ is divided. Paul did not want to do that. I want, you to, I want to stress that Paul would never put unity, though, above the truth. Never. We also established that Paul would never waver from the gospel, no matter who disagreed with him. His hope here was to reveal the false gospel going around, present his gospel, and find a kindred spirit. And if he could do that with these men of reputation first, well, then it would be that much easier for him to speak freely and confidently to the rest of the church in Jerusalem when the time came. And it would come sooner than later at the Jerusalem Council, Council, which would have been Paul's next visit after this one. I can sympathize with Paul. Maybe you can too. But as a pastor, I can sympathize very well with Paul. Pastors need to know which doctrines the membership needs to hear at any given time and when and how to introduce them. Timing and manner of presentation, believe it or not, is crucial. It is. Meat is not for everyone. And congregations are a mixed bunch, ranging from the most mature to the most immature at any given time. No church leader should ever upset the body unnecessarily and should work, however, to educate it. You've got to be tactful and wise in the way that you do that. As it turned out, the apostles agreed with Paul. And proof of that fact, was that they insisted that Titus not be circumcised. And now you know why it was important for Paul to bring Titus, which, is, which, is, uh, which lends to the, to the support of Paul's purpose for going in the first place. They had, given Paul a had they given Paul a difficult time, he would have simply pointed to Titus as a test case. See that man? He is an uncircumcised Greek who is born again. Beloved, I, I said that we don't want to upset our fellow Christians unnecessarily, and that's the key word. That has nothing to uh, that has everything to do with timing and delivery of our of our content of our content, but not the content itself. Do you understand that? What that means is. Christians, if Christians get upset over doctrine, 
and its application. Well, it should not be because of our presentation, but because of the content. When an issue arises that calls for correction and teaching, you're going to know you're, 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 you're going to know the truth, and the truth might upset you, but that's not my concern. There is a matter between you, that's a matter between you and the Holy Spirit. My concern is that my delivery and the timing of my presentation is not the problem. For Paul, the time was now to bring the truth because, as we read in verse 4, the gospel ministry was at stake. It was at risk. This is Paul's rationale. He says, it was therefore because of the false brothers who slipped in under false pretenses to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. Now here we arrive at the heart of the matter. We of course know that Paul had said much more than this to the apostles. Most of the time, narratives don't give us every single detail or every word Rather, they just give us the highlights, those points that are important to mention in order to, to move the, 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 their purpose along for writing. So the apostles knew exactly what Paul was talking about. But I think we need to clarify his code language just to make sure that we're on the same page. And what Paul describes here for the Galatians was really insidious. This is the first time in the letter that Paul identifies these Judaizers as we're calling them, as false brothers. Make no mistake about that. The Greek word that he uses is pseudo-brothers. It's exactly what it is, which is plain enough. They're not real brothers. They're not true Christians. Rather, they're counterfeit. And he explains further that they slipped in under false pretenses. Now, that's my translation. The New American Standard Bible, the ESV, and the New King James describe the manner of their infiltration as secretly or by stealth, while the New International Version and the Christian Standard Bible simply state that they infiltrated the church, but neither captures the manner fully. The idea is not that they joined churches without being noticed. Well, that's, that's not the secret part of their plot. No, that, that wouldn't make sense. They were very much noticed. No doubt, they became very popular in a short amount of time. They won people over by their winsome way. They were embraced. What people hadn't realized is that these guys came for unholy reasons that, that were known only to them. That's the secret part of this. The idea that Paul wants the Galatians to have of these pretenders is that they fooled their target churches by their presentation, and they led church members to think that they were legitimate, honest-to-goodness Bible teachers, but they were far from it. And Paul addresses, only on a surface level, their, their uh, insincere motives by explaining that they came in really to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus. The freedom he speaks of here is also code for the gospel of grace. In other words... One does not have to submit to the law of Moses and first become a Jew before becoming a Christian. It's totally impossible for a person to do anything that would make him acceptable in God's sight anyway, or even cooperate with God in the salvation process. The wonderful death and rebirth process 
can only be a total work of God, a work of God alone. And these false believers who perverted the gospel of grace, turning it into a gospel of works, they came to scope out the situation in the Gentile regions in order to determine the best course of action, the most effective way to win over their victims to a false gospel, or as Paul puts it, in order to enslave us. This is an obvious parallel that Paul makes here to what's going on in Galatia. He says, really, in essence, this is exactly what they're doing to you now. Now, I want to speak to the idea of a works gospel just for a moment. Let me digress before we get to the last couple of, uh, of points here. What's so dangerous about a works gospel? Well, for starters, it's a false one, so it doesn't save anybody. It also misleads people into thinking that it does. So those who embrace it think that they are Christians when, in fact, they really are not, and they remain in their condemnation. How terrible is that? I might also mention that this false gospel works, uh, this gospel of works, rather, is an easier sell than a gospel of grace, which you might find to be difficult or hard to believe. Really? Yes. And here's why. This is what people know and expect and are comfortable with, gospel of works or a works-oriented religion. You see, all human worldviews that believe in an afterlife or gods, they're all work-oriented, every one of them. It was that way, in fact, immediately after the fall. Once Adam and Eve knew something was wrong, uh-oh, they sewed fig leaves to cover their shame, a human work that God rejected. God says, no, he sacrificed perfect substitutes instead. All throughout the ancient Near East, people worshipped gods and goddesses with their works, thinking they could earn their deity's acceptance or appease them. We mentioned earlier Elijah and the prophets of Baal out of 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a fascinating passage. When Baal wasn't responding to his prophet's cries, Elijah makes some rather sarcastic suggestions. Cry louder, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. <clears throat> Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on a trip. Perhaps he's sleeping and, and will wake up. He said these things because that's what pagans thought about their gods. Their gods were actually more human than we think. They were capricious. They were fickle. They were bored easily. And they were just plain unavailable sometimes. And when there was no response, they cut themselves, according to their custom, until they bled, as if that would appease the gods. I think people, both ancient and modern, have an easier time believing in a god who interacts with them when they have to perform certain rituals and rites. Knowing that you are appeasing a god and goddess by your actions makes worship more convincing. The gospel of grace is unique quite foreign to people. That's why they they're kind of st they stop in their tracks over something like that. You don't have to do anything? No. No, you don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. It's been done for you by the work of Christ. You simply have to trust His work alone. A rather difficult thing for people with a works mentality to do. Now, when we deliver the truth as tactfully and as graciously as possible, we need to be resolute about it. 
In other words, verse 5, don't waver. Stand your ground. Paul stood firm regarding the gospel of grace. He said, but we did not yield in subjecting, subjection to them, the Judaizers, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. I don't need to say much here. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but, but what Paul had to say here, he stuck to his guns. He wavered not one inch. No compromise. Now, I'll emphasize one aspect that we might tend to miss here. Aside from the compulsion from God and being obedient to God's uh, vision to go, notice here that Paul was resolute and immovable, immovable about the pure gospel of grace also for the sake of the Galatians. This is very important. There are two people in our lives, beloved, that we must be concerned about as Christians all the time. God is the first one, and our neighbor is the second, and in that order. We must love God as we ought, and then we need to love neighbor as we ought, as God calls us to. And we will if we love God. The essence of the Christian life is really loving God and loving neighbor as we ought. That's it. And you stand for the truth for those two parties. You owe a debt of gratitude, of course, to the Lord. We all do for his his work on our behalf, for his special revelation that he has given us to lead us and guide us and, and fill us with wisdom. We also owe a debt of gratitude to those who have gone before us in the fight of faith. The great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, Augustine, the Reformers, the Puritans, and men and women since, since then that God used to defend the faith so that we would have it as God has delivered it. So much is at stake when heresy creeps in. That leads us to the desired result of standing firm on doctrinal truth, and that is biblical unity. Verses 6 through 9, we have Paul's reception, and here we understand that we need to strive for biblical unity. As it turns out, the apostles hardly accepted Paul's gospel, which was the same one that they preached, and the divine commission to the Gentiles, and they identified with Paul and Barnabas as co-laborers. Paul says, but from those who were of considerable repute, and they, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. Let's just stop there for a second. These words by Paul indicate a, a slight dismissive tone that we might, we might misunderstand as being directed toward the apostles, but that's really not the case. Paul was not directing anything uh, or, or dismissing the, the apostles or their authority. No, rather he was directing his dismissive tone to his opponents. In other words, he is referring here to their accusation that his authority is not equal to those of repute, meaning the apostles. And so he uses their very words, and he says, yes, the apostles are of considerable repute, but they carry no more authority than I. God has appointed us both equally, showing no favoritism. And I have, up to this point, worked in my own independent ministry to which they contributed nothing. It was really kind of a 
parenthetical thought that Paul slips in there. He picks up at verse 7, straight to verse 9. But on the contrary, seeing that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. James, Peter, and John recognized that Christ called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles in the same way that Christ called Peter to be an apostle to the Jews. It's no surprise that they would then show their reception of Paul and Barnabas by giving them the right hand of fellowship. That is a gesture in Paul's time that became uh, a familiar way for two people to pledge friendship and acknowledge their, their agreement with each other. We would say in our vernacular, they shook on it. Now, Paul here strives for the unity of the church. Didn't want there to be a rift between him, the church of Antioch, the church of Jerusalem, and the churches in Judea. That would be a terrible thing. And by standing for the truth, he achieved unity. There's also one other thing he achieved, and that was a reaffirmation of the ministry. That's in verse 10. At the close of their time together, Paul reaffirms the desire on the part of both parties to minister fully for Christ, including caring for the poor. Verse 10, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. The reference to the poor here is a reference to the poorer members of the churches in Judea and the church in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John were asking Paul really to remember their important mission to the Jews. I believe because this was a famine visit, that it was at this time that Paul closed out the meeting with a money gift that came from the church at Antioch. I have no way of knowing this, but to me it sounds like it would be a great way to, to end everything, a very climactic way. Can you imagine the looks on the apostles' face when they were presented with this money? It, it would have showed that Paul was one step ahead of them. Care for the poor? Well, of course we'll do that. In fact, here's proof that we do too. We believe in the same ministry, money, to help the church during the time of a coming famine. Paul would deliver the money again to Jerusalem churches after his first missionary journey. This time, he would have gathered it from the churches of Corinth and Macedonia and Rome, Greek-speaking congregations who were saved by the gospel of grace. Well, beloved, we've been arguing from this text that there, it is necessary, it is necessary to review doctrinal basics when the gospel ministry is at stake. Since God compels us to, to be unwaveringly of one mind over them in order to preserve biblical unity and to affirm the ministry, I would like to make just a few practical implications from the thrust of this passage. Four or so, maybe five. Number one, we should reclaim orthodoxy every time the secular culture or apostates in Christianity 
hijacks an aspect of it and redefines it for its own purposes. We should do that. There's really not more I, I, I need to say about that. We need to stand for the truth. When it is apprehended by evil people or misguided people or people who are not, are not Christians who may think they are, we need to reclaim orthodoxy and we need to stand for the truth. That's all about what Jude says with regard to contending for the faith. Number two, we need to seek to cultivate biblical unity and affirm ministries by the truth, never in spite of the truth. By the truth, never in spite of it. To say that another way, there should be nothing more important to us Christians than God's truth, not even unity. We should never strive for unity at the sake or expense of God's truth, which happens all too often in churches in this country, especially since God's truth is the only thing that establishes biblical unity. Number three, the local church is God's ordained means for legitimate local church ministry. You might be thinking, well, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty obvious to me, but it isn't to a lot of people in Christendom in this country. God's ordained means for legitimate local church ministry or for ministry is the local church. I cannot help but highlight the importance of the local church because Paul does here as the ordinary means that God has ordained for ministry. There are many people who claim to be Christians who claim to have a ministry that are not under the auspices of local church elders. In fact, they themselves are not even members of a church. And I want to, I want to instill in you, uh, if you're not even thinking along these lines, that that kind of creature does not exist in the New Testament. They're what I call lone wolves. The New Testament never recognizes lone wolves except to say that they, that they are not what, what you want to be. Don't forsake the assembling as some are in the habit of doing and so on. They went out from us because they were never of us and so on. Notice that even though Paul himself was called to be an apostle and adamantly argued that his authority was not bestowed upon him by anyone other than Christ, his relationship with the local church was nevertheless intact. He became not only a member of the Antioch church, but an elder of that church. And the Holy Spirit called him as a full-time missionary and church planter through the local church. The elders were commanded to set Paul and Barnabas aside for the work, Acts 13. I might also point out that at the end of every missionary journey, Paul would return to the church of Antioch to give a report. Why? It was his sending church. He was accountable to them, as it should be. Now, if Paul, an apostle no less, believed that he could not act apart from the local church, how much more we Christians today, who are obviously not apostles, too many Christians ignore the church membership to their own detriment since ministry is always under the auspices of local church leaders. Always, beloved. There is no other option. God's program for the ages is the church. Not parachurch, but the church. Number four, we should also, wherever possible, hold other churches who have established a relationship with us accountable. We have to
careful here. We, of course, have no jurisdiction over another church, much less any ability to or responsibility to discipline them. But there is no question that heresy would affect our relationship and that God holds us accountable to confront other churches with whom we have relationships lovingly with the hope of winning them over and out of heresy. The divines had it right, as they explain in the 1689 Baptist Confession. Under chapter 26, listen to paragraph 15, just a little bit of it. Quote, cases of difficulties or differences, doctrinal or administrative, may arise, touching on the peace, union, and edification of all churches in general or an individual church. Other cases may occur when a member or members of a church are injured in or by disciplinary action that is not in keeping with the truth and order. In such cases, it is according to the mind of Christ for many churches having fellowship together to meet through their messengers to consider and give their advice concerning the issue in dispute and to report their advice to all the churches concerned. That's pretty wise. There are times when it is important to revisit doctrine with the church, either local or even to challenge other churches with whom we have a relationship when the context warrants it in a timely, tactful way without wavering. I believe these four applications are what Paul would have wanted the Galatians to know and apply. Not just jettisoning the false gospel that was circulating in their midst, but even championing the truth in the body of Christ at large, as should we in this great and terrible season of apostasy and compromise of Christianity in America. It's time that we reclaim and restate God's truth for the record. Our Father, we are grateful for this time together. For the words of the Apostle in Galatians 2, these wonderful ten verses that give us so much encouragement, a model to us of, of doctrinal purity and fervency, of the right kind of zeal that is, that is according to the truth and we pray, Lord, that, that we would exhibit this, that we would be characteristic of it. And in these last days, we would be wise in the way that we, we preserve the truth, that, uh, as we teach the truth, as we cultivate the truth, and as we have relationships with other churches who come to us in various ways, especially through the counseling ministry, that we would that we would be true to you and to them and hold them accountable to practice the ministry in the way that you have ordained it and ordered it for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of the church. We pray in Christ's name.